You'll recall uh, from last week that Jonathan, we of course are in the books of First and Second Samuel, and uh, we, we've been making our way through this series for the last couple of months now, Lessons from the Kingdom for Today. Well, last week, Jonathan, in the first half of chapter 14, in faith, stepped out and sought to see whether or not God would, would give he and just his armor bearer victory over the Philistine garrison at Michmash against overwhelming odds. And, of course, he did. We found Saul then playing catch-up uh, after that, eventually bringing his army and fighting with the rest of Israel. But today we pick up with verse 24 and find out exactly how Israel fared in this battle um, against her arch enemies, arch enemy, the, uh, the Philistines, and where things end up for Jonathan and Saul. Now, back in chapter 13, Samuel had pronounced judgment against King Saul, declaring the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people. No longer would Saul be king. It's going to take time for that to actually uh, take place, but no descendants of Saul would sit on the throne of Israel. God wanted a king who would rule Israel with humility, a king who was teachable, a king who could obey his commands, and he is looking for men and women in the body of Christ like that today. Now, like Saul, we can too often become guilty of playing the part, looking religious but lacking a real heart for God. We basically, we know how to act. And the dangerous thing is that without actually waiting on God or praying in real devotion and desperation without spending time alone in his word. We begin to make decisions and, and speak authoritatively. Maybe you can remember times like that in your own life where you've been guilty of that. We begin uh, to do that confidently as though we, we know God's heart and mind with certainty when we don't. Saul certainly didn't. We get impatient with prayer and waiting on God, we, we decide to solve problems in the power of our own flesh rather than waiting on God and trusting in him. It's a, it's a dangerous cycle that we can find ourselves in, and it's what we're calling this morning the Saul cycle. That's our title for this morning's message as we look at 1 Samuel 14, verses 24 through 52. What we're, what we're looking at today in these verses, it's a continuation of this cycle of pride, sin, and rebellion in King Saul's life. And as we consider Saul, it's an opportunity to, to look at and to examine our own lives, to think about where you and I just may be guilty of the same. But the good news is, is that while Saul's story is told, yours and mine aren't. Yet, that is, <laughs> we can still grow, we can still change, repent, we can learn and heal and become the men and women that God has called us to be. We can cry out to God for mercy and stop that Saul cycle in our own lives. The question is, are, are we aware of our sin and shortcomings? Do we see it in ourselves? I read that a young woman asked for an appointment with her pastor to talk about a besetting sin about which she was worried. 
When she saw him, she said, Pastor, I become aware of a sin in my life which I can't control. And every time I'm at church, I begin to look around at the other women and I realize I'm the prettiest in the whole congregation. None of the others can compare with my beauty. Whatever can I do about this sin, she shared with her pastor, who replied, Mary, I can help you. That's not a sin. Why, it's just a mistake. <laughs> do we see our sin, our failure, and our mistakes? Are we aware of our blind spots in our own lives? The, the failures of Saul and men like him, those who insist on having their way, being recognized and applauded, are most at risk for refusing God and walking in disobedience because we're, we're far too focused on ourselves rather than him and his ways. Saul failed, but you and I don't have to. Let's pray, and then we'll, we'll begin looking at the first section of verses. Father, as we open your word, we're asking that, Lord, this morning you would cause Lord, the eyes of our understanding to be, to be opened. Lord, that you would reveal yourself to us. God, we're praying that you would speak to our hearts. God, show us those things we need to know. We're asking this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we'll begin looking at verses 24 through 30. Our first point, if you grab the outline on your way in or off the connection table, uh, our first point is the folly of the flesh. Verse 24, and the men of Israel, who remember are pursuing the Philistines in battle, were distressed that day for Saul had placed the people under oath saying, cursed is the man who eats any food until evening before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now all the people of the land came to a forest and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping, but no one put his hand to his mouth for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath, probably because he was too busy fighting the enemy. Therefore, he stretched out the end of his rod that was in his hand and dipped it in a honeycomb and put his hand on uh, to his mouth and his countenance brightened. Then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. But Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now, would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? So, Israel is engaging in this battle with their enemies, following Jonathan's faith-filled determination to trust God and attack their, their garrison there at Michmash. Saul joins the battle late. Ever walking in the flesh and leaning on his own understanding. Now he comes up with this rash declaration that was unnecessary and unwise. We read it in verse 24. Cursed is the man who eats anything until evening. He called all of his soldiers to fast while they're in the middle of fighting. Before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. Rather than focusing on the Lord, Saul makes this about himself. Before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. This whole move, it really seems to be the king asserting himself as leader over this military campaign that actually Jonathan had begun. Saul is about these kinds of power moves. 
Uh, he wants to be recognized and seen. Honestly, what Paul has commanded his men to do is foolish. They're fighting hard. They're chasing after the Philistines. And he demands that they fast until evening. Why in the world would you place this burden on your soldiers when, when they're right in the middle of a war? Don't take any sustenance. Don't be strengthened in, in any way. Fasting itself is, of course, a, a wonderful and, and a healthy spiritual discipline. But there's a time and a place for it, and, and this wasn't it. According to Matthew 9, it appeared that Jesus' own disciples didn't fast as much as those of John the Baptist and the Pharisees, and they were actually asked about it. And, and Jesus responded in chapter 9, verse 15, can the friends of the, the bridegroom mourn as, as long as the bridegroom is with them? Jesus' point was, my disciples, their focus is on me as it should be. They need their energy to focus on those things that I'm teaching and showing them. The work that I have for them to do. And he was basically telling them fasting will come later, which of course it did in the life of the disciples. Saul is really out of step with what needs to happen right now. And I suspect that it's because Saul knows he's not right with God. And so he comes up with this self-punishing plan. But because he's, he's king and can, he commits everybody to it. Saul thinks, well, I need to, f to fast, but you know what? We're all going to go ahead and do this. He's, he's insecure, maybe, about whether or not God is with them. Because <laughs> after all, Saul is not with God at this point. So he decides fasting would help. Except soldiers need their strength when they're fighting. And what really needs to happen is for him to humble himself, to seek, and to wait on God. But this is not, in fact, what it is, is very common for Saul, a reaction when he gets himself in trouble. Instead of actually seeking the Lord, instead of actually humbling himself, he'll, he'll lead and rely on exterior displays of religion and disciplines for that matter. He's, he's got to keep forging ahead and, and figuring it out himself. Saul is perpetuating again this, this, well, what I've called the Saul cycle. Now, what happens next, of course, is that Jonathan and his men, the prince not having heard about this, this ill-advised instruction from his father, the king, they find themselves moving through a forest where they come upon uh, a beehive that's overflowing. I can't help but like think of, you know, they're in the 100-acre wood or something. <laughs> honey, you know, it's anyway. There's honey overflowing from this hive, and, and it's dripping all the way down onto the ground. Exhausted and hungry from a day of fighting, Jonathan takes his staff, dips it in the honey, and, and takes it to his mouth, relieving himself, right? He's, he's strengthened and revived but once Jonathan had taken of the honey and his men noticed it, they warned him and said, Jonathan, didn't you hear your father's uh, proclamation committing us all to fast and bringing a curse on anyone who eats anything? Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. Jonathan points out that, that if it were not for this silly vow uh, that they've been bound by, um, they would have accomplished a greater victory against their enemies. 
Saul doesn't know what he's doing because he's not waiting on or seeking God. He's trying to figure it out as he goes because he thinks he knows more than he does. And that's a dangerous way to attempt to discern the will of the Lord. That's a scary place to be as, as believers, trying to sort of feel our way along in the dark, relying on, on yesterday's revelation or, or a walk with the Lord that used to be, and, and now all we have left is, is sort of, uh, well, leftovers. And we're, we're assuming that, you know, we'll, we'll be able to cobble something together that looks like the will of God. <laughs> How not to make a good decision in the Lord. Do it in haste. Saul made this declaration without thinking it through. Do it out of selfishness. Saul wanted this victory for himself. Do it without dealing with your own sin first. Saul is still refusing to admit his guilt and sin that he was confronted about in chapter 13. Fourthly, do it without prayer and without a history of time in the word. Saul is too busy to pray, too proud to wait and seek God. Remember in the, in the first part of this chapter, there was a point where he actually called for the priest to pray, but then he was distracted by the noise of the enemy and he told the priest, withdraw your hand, stop praying. I'm trying to figure out what we should do next. It's, it's sort of a picture of our impatience in those kinds of situations when we should be waiting on and seeking the Lord, but instead we're, we're too much about moving ahead in, in the power of the flesh and leaning on our own understanding. We need to slow down. We need to humble ourselves. We need to seek God and put him and others first ahead of ourselves. We need to confess and deal with our own sin and then seek his face and read his word, waiting for direction and wisdom. In, the, in this, we, we position ourselves to be filled with the Spirit of God and emptied of self. That's how we can discern God's will properly and rightly. The flesh, it's deceptive. We, we have to guard against its wiles. A walk in the Spirit is the surest way to keep us from this cycle of sin. Galatians 5.16 describes it perfectly. I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh and these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. Abiding in Christ. Walking in that, in that daily and moment by moment dependence on the Holy Spirit to fill, to empower and to lead us into God's will and ways and purposes. Now, verses 31 through 34, who's to blame? Verse 31, now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon, and that's about 15 miles or so to the west of where the battle had begun. So the people were faint. This was a long day, and they weren't just tired, but they were very hungry. And the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. And then they told Saul, saying, look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. So he said, you have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone against me to this day. 
Then God said, disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, bring me here every man's ox and every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat and do not sin against the Lord by eating with blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. Now, while these verses are somewhat extreme, what we just read, and this is bad, it's not necessarily what you might think. Because you read those verses and you just almost imagine them like tearing these animals open and eating like, you know, raw meat, cow sushi or something. And that's, that's not exactly what's being described here. It's really referring more to the way according to the law that the animals were to be ceremonially or, or properly bled before they were cooked and eaten um, so that they would be kosher is how we would say it today. Remember the law of God, it, it addressed all, all things spiritual and social and civil for the, the children of Israel so that they would be set apart, different in following God's law and, and ways than, than the nations around them so that they would be holy. And this was a big part of it. In Leviticus chapter 17, we read in verse 10, and whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers who dwell among you, who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the souls. Therefore, I said to the children of Israel, no one among you shall eat blood, nor shall any stranger who dwells among you eat blood." There's a lot going on here, but verse 11 is really the key. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. Blood represented atonement. It represented forgiveness. It, it represented uh, the guilt and shame of, of man being dealt with before God. His, his wrath for sin... Um, being met in that sacrifice. Blood represented life, of course, as it still does today. That life was exchanged for guilt and shame of, of the one who offered the sacrifice. This, it was the substitute that they might be forgiven and cleansed, that they wouldn't have to lay down their own lives, of course. Now, to simply eat it, to, to consume blood like it was nothing, it disregarded the the imagery, and the reality. It would be like today if we took communion and, and did something blasphemous with it, and we think of different ways in, in the more extreme aspects of darker parts of our culture or in the occult where that has been done. How offensive would that be if you, if you took the elements of communion and did something profane with them? mocking the sacrifice of Christ, how much more actual and literal blood itself. In fact, this was important enough to be reiterated in the New Testament as one of the few elements of the law that was still to be observed by Christians. 
In Acts 15, we read about a debate that was kind of raging in the early church where Gentile believers, they, they were coming in large numbers to Christ, but, but there were groups that previously had been Jewish which in the, within the church who were saying, well, if you, if you really want to be saved, you actually have to be circumcised and you have to follow the law of Moses in addition to trusting in Jesus. Well, <laughs> that, that didn't sit well with some of the leaders, and so... Uh, the apostles in Jerusalem had to wrestle with it, and the conclusion they came to is found in verse 10 of Acts 15. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we are able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. And they went on to say in verse 19, therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to pay attention to three things in the law, to abstain from things polluted by idols, don't engage in, in the worship of false gods, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. There in Acts 15, they recognized the preciousness of blood and said, don't engage in, the, in occult practices or others that would lower the value of, of, of life that has been given in exchange for sin. Blood is precious because through it comes covering for sin. It's forgiveness. In the Old Testament, those sacrifices, they pictured the greater precious sacrifice that was coming through Christ. His blood is precious. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17, Peter writes, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish, and without spot. Peter quotes Jesus in speaking to communion in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five. 25. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So then and now, what these men did in rushing on the meat, kneading it, not bleeding it properly, um, it was a problem. Now, the resolve was, as we read in verse 34, to quickly correct the situation. Saul rebuked the people in verses, uh, verse 33, and even though he was responsible, having starved them through the battle and effectively causing them to stumble, he, he did get this right. Saying to them in verse 33, you have dealt treacherously, roll a large stone to me this day. He's asking basically for them to bring kind of a big table upon which uh, those remaining animals can be properly uh, slain, bled, and then cooked for eating. Verse 35 tells us that King Saul actually built an altar there, and it was the first one that he'd built. And so from that, we would imagine that as these animals were slaughtered and bled, they were then offered as fellowship offerings. In the Old Testament, there were multiple different kinds of offerings. A sin offering, it was placed on the altar, the whole thing was burned. It was completely consumed. 
a fellowship offering was a little bit like what we might imagine communion to be today, where some of it was consumed on the altar completely, but then other parts after they were cooked were given to the one making the offering, and they actually ate it and partook of some themselves. rather. Probably that's what's happening here. Saul comes out looking pretty good uh, at the end of this verses, except he hasn't taken any responsibility himself in this mess, though he's, he's done a good job of laying the blame at the foot of the people. Can you imagine? He puts this vow on them, and then they stumble. They do this horrible thing, and, and he comes and kind of condemns them. It sort of sounds like how the enemy works in our lives. Well, We need to be careful of doing the same. Forcing others to submit to some conviction that's ours personally, but isn't necessarily for everyone. There's a short step between personal conviction and legalism. We have to be careful to maintain the separation and not force others to take responsibility for our ideas that at times, as was the case in Saul's leadership, can be ill-advised. Maybe you've experienced this before, where someone from a place of, of feeling spiritual about something wants to impose a conviction on everybody or on you personally that you don't necessarily share and isn't necessarily helpful. It might be better if it was just kept to them personally. Jesus warned his disciples against this tendency in the religious to come up with with rules and insist that those around them abide by them. It's a legalism that's dressed up as spirituality. We actually read about this in Matthew 23, verse 1. Jesus spoke to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe... That observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. And you know what? There's a really interesting principle about people that are kind of given to legalism, where they're narrow towards others, but broad toward themselves. The closer you get to their lives, if you're, if you're able to see through the, the veneers and get a closer examination, the, the rules are many and, and burdensome for everybody else, but for them personally, there's allowances and there's excuses. Have you seen that? Or does that sound a little too familiar in your own life? Verse 4, for they bind heavy burdens hard to bear. Think about how the Pharisees were all about their rules, but personally and privately, they were a mess in their hearts before the Lord. And lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. There's a problem here with motivation. We see it with Saul too. If anyone's going to move God's people to take up a burden, let's make sure that it's Jesus. Because remember, he tells us that his, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. We want to be careful about trying to force and push God's people. Everybody needs to be doing this. Everybody needs to be, you know, X, Y, and Z. 
How about we give space and let God by his Holy Spirit show everybody what they're supposed to be doing? Now, obviously, there are many things that are, are generically true in the best sense possible. It's, it's why we are committed to the word of God and teaching through it. But there's nuances and there's things that maybe God would, would speak to our hearts personally that are, that are just for us. I can tell you right now, as, as passionate and as committed as I am to having a, a healthy and a strong children's ministry, we're not all called to serve in children's ministry. And, and as wonderful as, uh, as various and different ministries are in this church, we're not all supposed to go to all of it and, and be committed to all of it. I, I've encountered people over the years in the body of Christ who, who will, will tell me, you know, well, this, this particular ministry, you know, this is the backbone, and this is where you want to see if, if this is healthy, then everything's, well, it's good to have a broad view and perspective of the body of Christ, of what God's doing, and recognize, you know what, there's people God calls to the mission field, there's people God calls to the toddler classroom, there's people that God calls to, to lead in ways that are public, there's people, ways that God calls people to, to serve more privately and behind the scenes. The key is learn and listen to what God's speaking to you personally, and be careful about imposing on others restrictions and requirements and callings that maybe or maybe not God's placed on you. Because sometimes where we come up with these things, like Saul, like the Pharisees, is from our own flesh. Because we've drifted so far from God and we've come to learn to rely on the arm of the flesh and what we knew from yesterday and yesteryear that really we're just listening to ourselves and no longer to what the Spirit of God is saying today. Again, to reiterate the point, it's why it's so important that we live in daily dependence on the Lord, not depending on somebody else's relationship, what somebody else says about the Lord, not just what's coming from this pulpit on a Sunday morning, but what God has to say to you in your time alone with him tomorrow morning or evening when you're opening up the book, just you and he. It's from that place of abiding in Christ and, and drawing on, on real relationship with the Lord that we gain a place and a position where we can really hear from God and, and be led by him. Now, let's move through verses 36 through 45. Our next point is, what's the real problem? Because there's more to deal with here. Verse 36, now Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light, and let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. Then the priest said, let us draw near to God here. So Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? <laughs> this is just a side note, but you probably should pray before you're, you know, in the middle of, yeah, exactly. Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. Oh. So having rescued, quote unquote, his men from their sin, Saul determines from this strength that he's going to continue his pursuit of the Philistines. But the priest suggests, hey, maybe we should stop and seek the Lord here before we keep moving forward. Um, and Saul agrees to that. But interestingly, God is silent. Saul seeks God or at least agrees to let the priest do so, uh, which is good. But, but we're still not seeing any real change in him or acknowledging of sin. There's no humility. There's just 
agreement with, with a religious act. Should we pray? Sure, go ahead and pray. God's not speaking? Oh well, I guess we just have to move forward. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 66, verse 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If we're not hearing from the Lord and we need direction, we should be asking the Lord, God, is there something I'm missing? Is there something that I need to make right in my life? Is there something I've not repented of? And certainly if we know what it is, we need to deal with that. When we reject the plain truth of God, he very often will be silent until we respond to what he's already shown us. We, we, we want to move ahead. We're, we're excited about doing the next thing. But God's being quiet. And usually we know what it is that he's already shown us that we're not willing to deal with. We, we've got to respond to that first before he'll show us more. Verse 38, and Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. So Saul assumes, well, God's not speaking. Somebody must be in sin. I mean, the irony here, right? So, so we're going to find out which of you has sinned because, I mean, he's not saying it, but what's assumed is it certainly couldn't be me. So it's one of you. And, of course, he's imagining that perhaps it's tied to his oath from earlier. Well, for as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But a man among all, not a man among all the people, answered. So again, uh, Saul imagines that the, there's guilt somewhere in the camp of Israel, uh, certainly not him. Verse 40, then he said to all Israel, you be on one side and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. So he divides up the camp and the king and his prince are here and they're, they're basically drawing straws in some way or another to try to narrow down and find out and allow God by his Holy Spirit to show systematically who is it that sinned, where is their sin in the camp. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot. <laughs> this time the Lord says, okay. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. So very quickly, it's narrowed down to two people. God says, well, the problem's one of you. And Saul said, cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken. Then Jonathan said, Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of my rod that was in my hand. So now I must die, or we may read it, so now I must die? Saul answered, God do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. This guy is so stubborn, he's willing to see his own son die and pay the price for his sin rather than recognize his own guilt. But the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not, as the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan, and he did not die. The reality is that this, this whole scenario and situation, it was concocted by Saul in sin and foolishness. And Saul, he's created and set this up in his flesh commanding that his troops not eat anything until the enemy was defeated while in the heat of battle. He endangered his son unnecessarily. None of this was required by God. All of it 
is what seemed like a good idea to Saul. Nonetheless, the king proceeds in this, this witch hunt of sorts in seeking to lay the blame for God's silence on anyone other than himself. We might ask, if Saul's the problem, why didn't God cause the lot to be drawn for him? I think it played out this way because Jonathan represented the, the rash and ill-conceived instructions and curse that the king had declared. Jonathan was in trouble, allegedly, because of Saul's decision. His foolishness had hampered his warriors and effectiveness. It cost them a more extensive battle that day and now would quite possibly cost him the life of his own son. Basically, Jonathan being chosen puts a spotlight on Saul's foolish and fleshly leadership in front of everybody. And any king, anybody with any degree of sensitivity should have recognized that, right? If this was you, wouldn't you be embarrassed at this point when you recognize my own son's life is in jeopardy because I made a dumb decision that cost us a more decisive battle? It didn't even make sense. My son, who began this whole thing in faith, now we're going to have to put him to death. Basically, everybody's looking at the king going, who put this guy in charge? Like, what is he doing? And anybody with a degree of humility and sensitivity would get that themselves, right? You ever get yourself into those places where you've painted yourself into a corner through your own pride and, and refusal to humble yourself before the Lord. And there's a scenario like this where you've got somebody else up on the block that you're willing to see die before you, when in reality, you're the one who's guilty. That's what's going on here with Saul. It's an opportunity for him to humble himself. He could have in front of the people said, I was wrong. Jonathan's life should not even be a question I never should have made the proclamation that I did, and I am sorry that it made the battle difficult for all of you. That wasn't from the Lord, that was from me. And by the way, while we're at it, I've got other things I need to confess and repent of. But does Saul budge? No. Verse 44, God do so and more also for you shall surely die but what price will we see others pay rather than confess our guilt? How many men and women will sacrifice their marriages, their relationship with their children, their parents, because they refuse to admit guilt, to take responsibility, to humble themselves? Now, finally, let's consider verses 46 through 52, closing thoughts, our last point. Verse 46, then Saul returning from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines, excuse me, then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines and the Philistines went to their own place. The king, distracted by his own foolishness, gave the enemy opportunity to escape. Verse 47, so Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them. And he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. So Saul's rule is marked 
by war and a degree of victory over Israel's enemies. In verses 49 through 51, we're given this summary of Saul's family, which is made more complete if you look at parallel accounts in other Old Testament books. But in verse 49, we read, The sons of Saul were Jonathan, Jishui, and Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were these, the name of the firstborn, Mirab, and the name of the daughter, Michal. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. Now there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. And so as Samuel had prophesied back in chapter 8, Saul impressed into service any he determined he wanted in his military entourage for himself. Self characterized this king who could have been great, but through his, his fixation on having things his way, he failed again and again, hurting others along the way as he perpetuated this Saul cycle in his own life. Saul was too distracted to pray and wait on God. Don't make that mistake in your own life. Saul was too concerned with getting the credit and the honor and the glory. We need to let that go to the Lord and others. Don't look for the spotlight. Saul was too proud to obey the Lord. We need to be hearers and doers of the word. In doing that, that, that cycle is broken in our lives. As we, as we learn to instead walk in the Spirit. I want to close with a quick page from military history. Uh, a U.S. Air Force transport plane, this was many years ago, uh, with its captain and five crew members was flying over Alaska in the mid-1950s. I don't think they were chasing a you know, Chinese spy balloon back then, but they were doing something up there in Alaska when they entered an unusually fierce snowstorm. Well, they became... Uh, disoriented with that extreme weather, and the, the navigator aboard the plane contacted an air base only to be told that he had veered the, uh, the vessel several hundred miles off course. They were way uh, outside of where they were supposed to be, this plane. Correct coordinates were given to the navigator who continued to insist that his own calculations could not be that far off. He wouldn't believe what he was told and make adjustments to bring them back to where they were supposed to be. Refusing to alter course, the plane soon ran low on fuel. The six men, finally in desperation, decided to abandon the plane and parachute to safety before they had to crash. But because of the 70 degree below Fahrenheit temperatures and the wind gusts of over 50 miles an hour, they were all frozen within minutes of hitting the ground. As a result of the navigator's pride, he and the five others all went to their deaths. The flesh and the self-cycle, the Saul cycle, left unchecked in our lives will not only bring harm to us, but to others as well. And certainly to the kingdom of God, to his work in and through us, but also others. 
I'm going to leave you with these words of Jesus found in John chapter 6, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. Father, as we come to the end of this morning's message and we consider Saul, Lord, who failed in so many ways, God, we want to be careful to recognize in our own lives. We want to listen to where you would show us by your spirit where we're guilty of the same. Maybe persisting in, in pride and refusing to humble ourselves. God, maybe not confessing and turning away from sin that we know you've convicted us of. Compensating with legalism instead of just doing what you know we've, we've been called to do. Lord, and maybe even being guilty of putting that weight on others. Lord, we want to repent of that. We want to be men and women who walk in humility, who walk in your Holy Spirit. Lord, who honor you. Lord, not just with what we say and do, but, but with the, the condition of our hearts. Lord, that we would be men and women after your own heart. Broken filled with your spirit and emptied of self, filled with the life of Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.